0: Welcome to the Air Quality News podcast, which is brought to you in association with Vortex IoT, who are now part of Marston Holdings. Together they're offering end-to-end decarbonisation solutions that reduce air pollution for their clients. For more information, please visit www.vortexiot.com. Hello and welcome to the Air Quality News podcast. Today, I'm joined by Ian Packham. Ian is an adventurer, award-winning travel writer, and motivational speaker. His biggest adventure to date was the first solo and unassisted circumnavigation of Africa by public transport, a journey which took 13 months and saw him traverse 25,000 miles. The book "Encircle Africa: Around Africa by Public Transport" is available in ebook and print. Ian has also travelled the length of Sri Lanka's longest river, walked the coast of the Isle of Man and the length of Hadrian's Wall. He also travelled more than 650 miles from the southern to northernmost point of Bangladesh. He's now preparing to set off on his latest adventure, where he will explore three areas of Pakistan over the course of a month, observing the impacts of climate change and collecting stories from across the regions. Thank you for joining us, Ian. Hi. Hi. So, to start with, Ian, you've been traveling around the world for many years, but this will be your first trip focused specifically on climate change stories. What motivated you to do this and and why now?
1: Well, it's a number of things, but predominantly all the trips I've done, the biggest ones you mentioned in your intro there, people have mentioned things linked to climate change or the environment Mm. to me whilst just traveling. So, for example, Uh, In Tanzania, I had a a farmer ask me if it was raining in Mozambique yet, because the rains have been delayed and he wanted to know when his crops are going to be fed with water. So they may not know the technicalities of climate change or be aware of the COP meetings and uh, events such as that. But repeatedly, all over the world, people are aware that the climate is changing and it's affecting the way they live. So that's something I wanted to look at more specifically. And Pakistan seemed like a good place to do that because while it has had very little impact on climate change, in the fact it hasn't pumped out loads of carbon into the atmosphere, it's one of those regions of the world which is going to be most adversely affected by climate change.
0: Mm. Well, you preempted me there. I was going to ask you why Pakistan, but could you give us a little bit more information about where you're going in the country, what regions you'll be visiting?
1: Yes. Yeah, so the aim is to explore. Three of the main regions. So, I'm going to start up in the Karakoram Himalayas area up in the north, where there are mountains and glaciers, the um, beginnings of the river Indus, which is one of the major water sources for the region. Then, I'll head to central parts of Pakistan in the Punjab area, again looking at the Indus and how that has an impact on life there and how climate change is affecting flows. And then I'll be heading to the far south of Pakistan to the coastline on the Arabian Sea, where there's this combination of desert and wetland, both of which are going to be affected by climate change in different ways if scientific predictions turn out to be true.
0: Mm, Definitely. And how did you pick those areas?
1: It was really... A combination of things, again, but mainly because of the difference in them. It's almost like Pakistan is the world in miniature. It's got these high mountains, some of the highest in the world. It's got important rivers, basins. It's got desert. It's got wetland. So it's like a perfect microcosm of how different areas of the world may well be affected by climate change.
0: Yeah, definitely. And you beautifully summed that up. And how are you planning to get around while you're in Pakistan? How will you be travelling?
1: So the, the main means of transport for the trip will be simply my feet. And the reason for that is I like in all of my trips to be on the ground and as close to local communities as possible, because I think that's one of the best ways to truly understand what those communities are living through and what they may well be mm-hmm. experiencing. And it allows for those sorts of uh, spontaneous interactions with people. And that's actually where I learn most of my most interesting bits of information about the places I'm traveling through.
0: Yeah, you you mentioned there about kind of bumping into people spontaneously. Who is it that you're hoping to meet on the trip? And will it be approaching people spontaneously? Or are there some people that you're planning to meet up with?
1: So I have hopefully got some more formal things organized with people working to alleviate climate change in the country but yeah as I say it's my trips are predominantly about the locals and almost just being quiet and letting them tell me these things you know Mm -hmm. instead of asking them what do you think about climate change it's much more interesting from there to see their point of view when they just bring it up in general conversation
0: yeah definitely getting a sense of how it affects their daily lives And obviously you've got a lot of experience of of doing these kind of trips before. How have you prepared for this trip and and how has your past experience um, allowed you to go on this new venture?
1: Uh, As you mentioned in the introduction, I walked across Bangladesh pre-COVID now. um, So it's a little while ago, but that kind of introduced me to true multi-day long distance walks. Specifically for this trip, I've just spent a couple of weeks up in the Alps. In Switzerland, so walking up and down mountain passes every day for 10 days, just getting the distance into my legs and the, the incline into my legs, because particularly the, the beginning part of the trip is going to be uh, through the mountains.
0: It sounds like it's quite mentally and physically exhausting. But how do you kind of keep yourself motivated when you're on these trips?
1: I think you, you've hit the nail on the head. It's actually trips like this are more mentally exhausting than they are physically exhausting particularly when you're traveling solo, like I do. And really, it's just a matter of, for me, taking each day as it comes. So at the end of each day, you've hopefully reached your destination. So you can tick that off and say, "Okay, that was the achievement. And then the next day you start all over again.
0: Yeah. You obviously you mentioned there traveling solo. How do you plan for not having that support? um, And how do you kind of keep yourself safe on these trips?
1: It's probably a little bit of luck, to be honest, but it's also an awful lot of planning. So, you know, you've got your plan A, but there's also a plan B, a C, and ideally there'll be a plan D. So if things don't go as expected, you're not stumped or stuck and not sure what to do, but there's um, an alternative. I should also say that in all of my travels, people have looked after me incredibly well, And I've never really faced any major serious problems to personal safety or anything like that.
0: I can imagine the kindness of strangers can be a big help on these kind of trips. And I guess to move on then, you've mentioned about climate change in Pakistan uh, briefly there. But what kind of climate change impacts has Pakistan as a country seen already and, and what's kind of predicted?
1: The list is quite long, unfortunately. So if we start up in the mountains, we're seeing... Increased glacier melt, mm. which causes problems with water because a lot of that glacier goes into supplying fresh drinking water for people. The monsoons in Pakistan are becoming more and more erratic, which means farmers are struggling to know when to plant crops. They're not getting the water they need. Temperatures across particularly the desert areas in the south are, are increasing and this is a part of the world which is already seen temperatures of 45 degrees celsius to 50 degrees mm. celsius in a normal year so if that increases anymore it starts to get to the point where people just can't live in these places they've lived for thousands of years
0: it's quite scary stuff and obviously air quality is is another issue in pakistan how does that kind of fit into the picture and what are the kind of sources of that
1: yeah so i don't think anyone would think it's unfair for me to say that the air quality in in the big cities, uh, Islamabad or Lahore or Karachi, is pretty awful generally. That's partly because as people have become richer and the public transport doesn't exist, they've basically had to rely on motor vehicles pumping out fumes. It's also because there's still quite a lot of coal use in um, Pakistan, which does obviously then contribute to climate change. And the fact that uh, many people, particularly in rural areas, but also in cities, still use uh, open fires to, to cook and to heat their homes.
0: It's a really serious issue. And in terms of that, how have you prepared for handling the, you know, the extreme temperatures, the pollution and stuff yourself?
1: I'm relatively used to being in hot countries, sort of, you know, 30 degrees plus and doing a day's walking. And for me, it's just a matter of if I pick the right pace and I keep myself hydrated, then I can sort of carry on. And like the locals living there, you just kind of have to put up with the pollution. And, you know, to the extent that sometimes you're washing off bits of diesel and solid mass off your skin at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, really. Oh, it's hard to think when you're in the UK that that kind of level can be experienced just having a a daily walk. And in terms of this trip then, what are the things you're hoping to achieve and your goals to get out of it?
1: So I personally would like to just learn more about how climate change is affecting people on the ground. And this Pakistan trip is a great way of doing that. also help maybe to remind people in this country, it's almost our historic responsibility. We kind of invented the Industrial Revolution And yeah, we didn't know what we were doing at the time, but we are responsible for a lot of the carbon that is being pumped out into the air, whereas the people in Pakistan aren't. So if we can keep the pressure up on the politicians and the people in power to do what they know has to be done to stop climate change getting any worse, and if I can contribute in just a small way to doing that, then I think this trip will be a success.
0: That's that's something that we're very aware of, that in the West, we've contributed more to climate change and emissions than countries like Pakistan. But obviously, we're not yet feeling the impact in the same way. So why is it important for people in the West to pay attention to the, the climate stories from these vulnerable communities across the world? And what do you hope that the kind of takeaways from people who hear about your trip will be?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it would be very easy for somebody to say, well, who cares what's going on in Pakistan? I don't live there. But The answer to that is what's happening in Pakistan today and next year and in 10 years time is going to happen to some degree in the UK and the Western world, slightly beyond that with increasing temperatures, with more erratic rainfall, with snow melt in the Alps uh, and all the other things I've, I've not mentioned. So it is really in our best interests to do something about it and to do something about it as soon as possible. And if the people who uh, follow along with this podcast or read the blog posts I'll be writing for Environment Journal get a sense of what's going on in the world and a reminder that we do need to keep the pressure up, then that's what really I'm aiming for.
0: I'm interested in your journey. Obviously, you know, this is the first trip that's, that's purely about climate change. If it sounds like you know a lot about climate change already. How long have you been interested in it? Is it something that you were always interested in separately? And have you had to do any more learning to raise your awareness before you went on this trip?
1: Hmm. Well, I mean, we sometimes think of climate change as this new thing. But I remember at primary school in the 80s, we were learning about climate change. It was called global warming back then, but it's exactly the same thing. We were learning about the Amazon being cut down for farming. So really, I've grown up with it. And you can't be interested in the world and the news without seeing stories of climate change. So gradually, my interest has increased. And really sort of worrying about it whilst being very aware that in the career I'm in, I am also contributing to that and have to reduce my own carbon emissions as much as possible.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up. How have you ensured that your trip has as, as little environmental impact as possible? And um, you know, how do you do that in your in your trips usually?
1: So uh, one of the ways I do that is when I travel. This is actually going to be one of my uh, shorter trips uh, in a month, believe it or not, because. Generally, I head out for two or three months at a time and Mm. pack in as much as I can do in a particular region of the world. So I'm not continuously flying to and from. So I'm trying to minimise my international travel that way. But also when I'm on the ground, this trip I'm going to be walking, which is obviously minimal carbon emissions. And then when I'm at home, like I am today, I'm on a green energy tariff, with 100% renewables, which doesn't cost me any more m- money than otherwise. I don't own a car and rely on public transport. And other things like reducing the consumption of the red meat. So hopefully all of that does a little bit, goes a little bit of the way to um, where we need to be.
0: I think one of the things that makes your trip stand out is the fact that you're, um, you rely on, on walking in public transport to get around. Was that a, a kind of conscious decision? Obviously you say you don't own a car... Was that something that just carried on over from your everyday life into your travelling? Or was that kind of a decision you made not to rely on cars to get around?
1: I think it is kind of a carryover from the way I grew up. My dad had a car so he could get to work, but that meant for me getting back from school, it was either walking when I was in primary school or then getting a bus later on. And that just carried over into my life, generally, I've, I've never owned a car, I have always lived in cities with good public transport, which does, of course, help. But the first time I then did travel abroad using public transport, I realised how much more of a place you experienced by sort of having life go on around you in a way it doesn't in if you're in your own private vehicle. So that's really now why I've stuck with it, because you just get such a better sense for where you are and how people live in that area
0: I imagine it's very difficult to really grasp especially something like climate change the impact that has on 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 normal people in somewhere like Pakistan because the reality is that most of them aren't going to be driving around in nice cars that's really interesting and in terms of the kind of types of people do you plan on staying with local people while you're out there Um, where are you going to be staying and are you hoping to speak to kind of a range of different economic and social backgrounds or are you looking to speak to kind of the rural farmers who are you primarily targeting?
1: So I don't think I'm really targeting anyone specifically my walk route will take me through sort of rural areas with farmland and quite small villages to some of the larger cities in Pakistan so I should just through that fact get a good mix of Rural populations, sort of the agrarian culture, and then yeah. the big city folks, sort of the the middle class of Pakistan. From my previous experiences, particularly in Bangladesh, I was constantly had people coming up to me and just talking to me and interested in in why I was there and visiting the country. So um, I'm hopeful the same thing will happen in Pakistan. And I just have lots of different people speaking to me so I can start to build up a sort of view of of how Pakistanis see the world and how they see climate change.
0: And and where will you be staying in the evenings and stuff while you're on your trip?
1: So it's a mix of hotels, motels, sort of homestays, depending on exactly where I am. Particularly up in the mountains, there's a, a good range of sort of hotels used to foreigners visiting, but in other parts... I will be sort of hopefully staying in sort of more homely environments where people sort of rent out a room for the night for passing travellers.
0: I can imagine that's a good way to get more of a sense of the full scope of the impacts as well if you're staying in someone's home and kind of taking part in their, in their daily life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Sort of trying to embed myself as, as much as possible in what's going on on a daily basis in the country.
0: And you've, you've spoken a little bit about not wanting to kind of ask them the questions, but letting them speak to you. How do you kind of strike the balance with something like this and making sure that you're not, you know, coming in as someone from the West and um, kind of preaching about climate change to these people? How do you ensure that, you know, you're kind of respecting those kind of cultural differences and, empowering them to tell their stories?
1: I think it's a matter of taking the time and just listening. You know, on previous trips, people have told me all sorts of sort of personal details that we wouldn't really share with a stranger if, if we met somebody at a bus stop in this country. So it's just a matter of listening and really not asking closed questions. So I've had it in the past where I've asked, is the nearest bus stop in a particular direction and I've pointed and they've said yes and they've agreed and I've gone down there and I've not found this bus stop but it turned out if I'd asked the question differently and said where is the bus stop I would have got a completely different answer and the answer I actually needed so it's a matter of being open and really not expecting anything from people you know I don't want to talk to every single person that I speak to, expecting them to tell me something profound about climate change and how it's affecting their lives.
0: No, that's really interesting. And and obviously, um, I can imagine language can, can be a bit of a barrier, as you said, with that bus stop story. Do you speak other languages that allow you to communicate easier? Or how are you hoping to communicate with people?
1: So I learned very quickly through my past experience that firstly, you can communicate an incredible amount just by pointing and hand gestures and things like that but also English thankfully being a global language there are always a good number of people who uh, speak English each village tends to have like a, a teacher who teaches English to the local kids and if somebody doesn't speak the language and can't get across what they're trying to say they will actually go and get this guy in the village who they know does speak English uh, and then we have this sort of three-way conversation so it's not actually as difficult a task as you might think it is.
0: It sounds like it's uh, a bit hard to navigate around but it's interesting that there's there's always someone around who can translate for you and then when you get back obviously you'll be writing some articles for Environment Journal. What do you plan to do with the kind of information that you gather? How how do you plan to kind of communicate it?
1: So part of what I do in In my life, how I earn a living is to give talks to to various groups around the country, to schools and to travel groups. So I'll be able to share the information I've gathered, the photos that I hopefully get and the the video that I also get with these groups um, when talking about this trip. To keep climate change in people's minds, you know, at the moment, the world is going through various different crises, including increasing in prices. And one of the things that tends to happen first is we go, well, we'll get rid of the, the green levy to, to bring down the prices. Yeah. So it's like the climate crisis is only a crisis when there's nothing else going on in the world and then it gets bumped down and we can't keep doing that again and again. We we need to just get a grip of it now.
0: What kind of action are you hoping to see, you know, in the next few years from, from countries like the UK to tackle climate change?
1: Well, I think it, is up to countries like the UK to lead the way it may seem unfair but we have contributed the most to climate change and really we also have a strong voice diplomatically and politically around the world Mm. so if we don't do something about it no other country is We, we kind of have to to lead the way and we have great science in this country we have great technology We can turn away from fossil fuel use, find alternatives, and we can achieve that. I'm really confident. I'm quite an optimist in this, that it's not too late, that we can find alternatives for what we need to to live the way we do. Um, And we have basically solved every problem we've ever come across as a community of people around the world.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's refreshing to hear that optimism. It feels like kind of an opportune moment, doesn't it, with the energy crisis and, and everything like that going on. It feels like it is kind of a turning point from which change needs to, to spring forth, really, in terms of, uh, you know, carbon use and how we heat our homes and stuff.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, renewable energy is already powering millions of homes in this country, And it's now basically cheaper to create and to maintain and to run than, say, North Sea oil is. So it is an ideal moment to get a grip of it. And actually, times of crisis tend to be those moments when we take a look at ourselves and deal with these issues.
0: Yeah. And I think we've obviously in the last month or two seen you know, seen our own share of, of extreme heat and flooding and, you know, droughts and, and torrential rain at the same time at the moment in parts of the country. Do you think people in the UK are starting to become more aware in your experience of climate change? I know you obviously go around and speak to people. Does it feel like people are much more engaged with the issue now?
1: Yeah, I think they've been aware sort of of the science of it for some time now. But I think now we've hit this critical mass of actually, we need to do something about it. And that is because, perhaps because of the heat heatwaves and, and the flooding that we're getting. And, you know, that's one thing we know, all the models for climate change say that the hottest parts of the world and the hottest times of year are going to get hotter and the wetter areas are going to get wetter. We don't want to see, I don't think, in this country, roads in cities or in the capital flooding. We don't want to see sewage being pumped into the rivers and the sea. So this has kind of become this critical mass that is basically forcing the people in power, who, as I said earlier, they know they've got to do something about it anyway. To actually, they know they've got the support of the public. And I think the public are actually more radical on these issues than government tends to be.
0: It's finding that political will, isn't it? We're at a moment of time where where hopefully, you know, climate change and sustainability aren't going away and they're just increasing in public awareness and in urgency. And so it makes it very hard not to act.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Great. OK, well, it's, it's been really interesting um, to speak to you about your trip and, yeah, wish you all the best luck for it. And we can't wait to hear what stories you collect when you get back.
1: Thank you very much. I'm, I'm really very excited about it.
0: That's great. Thanks, Ian. Thanks. This podcast has been brought to you in association with Vortex IoT, who are now part of Marston Holdings. Together they're offering end-to-end decarbonisation solutions that reduce air pollution for their clients. For more information, please visit www.vortexiot.com.